By and large, you can actually tell what's important to an author of a piece of literature by uh, the amount of space that is given to, to that. Um, just uh, glance through the Sun newspaper and the Independent and, share, and exchange, uh, uh, compare what they give space to and you'll soon see what I mean. And actually the, the Gospel accounts of uh, uh, Jesus reveal an overwhelming interest in his death. They um, uh, so focus on the last week of his life that some uh, people have described them as, as passion narratives with extended introductions. Jesus' death is the great focus of all of uh, uh, the Gospel writers. So uh, with that in mind, when we come to uh, the book of Exodus, something strikes us. Chapters 25, actually, to 31 are devoted to uh, instructions, detailed instructions even, of uh, the setting up of a large tent called the tabernacle. And then, um, uh, as if that wasn't uh, hammered home enough, in uh, chapters 35 to uh, 40, six further chapters uh, are then devoted to a repeat description, actually, of uh, almost all of the, the details, this time describing how they did set up this tent called the tabernacle, which we've got an imaginary picture of there. All in all, actually, a third of the chapters of Exodus are devoted to this tabernacle. It's clearly very, very important. So I have to say it's with some embarrassment that I have to tell you that we've only got one sermon to cover all of those uh, chapters. Uh, we, will, uh, we gave you a little taster of the Old Testament law last time. That was, uh, that was four or so chapters. Um, this time we'll have to just give you an even briefer taster of uh, what this tabernacle has to teach us. But I hope again it will whet your appetite and help you see why this tent was vitally important to the Israelites. We must remind ourselves, just for a moment, of where we've got to in the story of Exodus. At the beginning, Israel was in slavery in Egypt, but God came down, he visited them, and he rescued them from Egypt. He took them through the Red Sea, which closed over their enemies, and then he led them in a pillar of cloud and fire to Mount Sinai. Last week we saw, at the foot of Mount Sinai, he gave them their, their laws by which they should live their daily life. And this week actually serves as an instruction, an extension of those instructions uh, that God is giving. Chapter 25, you see, just continues the story. Lord, the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. Then uh, all the things that they're to bring are, are described. Uh, verse 8, then, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishing, furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Why is that pattern so important? Well, it's because it helps them to understand what it means to have God dwell amongst them. Up to now, you see, God has, God has visited them 
um, delivered them from Egypt. He's gone ahead of them in that pillar of uh, cloud and fire. He's come down on the top of the mountain in, uh, uh, in cloud and uh, thunder and lightning and so on. But God's intention is he should dwell at the heart of the community as that picture shows. And uh, in order for them to understand how he can dwell amongst them, he has them set up this tabernacle, this tent with its courtyard. So that always they will have a visual aid of what the key issues are associated with God dwelling amongst them. Therefore, it's actually very relevant for Christians today. Because as uh, the song that we just sang said, God in Christ, by his Spirit, dwells amongst us. The issues that were uh, real and vital for those ancient Israelites are just as vital for us today as God, uh, as Christ promises, surely I am with you to the very end of the age. We must then um, try to understand, at least in outline, this tabernacle. I hope you can see uh, that, uh, that, that plan. First of all, uh, um, we need to just understand the overall plan. Uh, the tabernacle, first of all, had a courtyard. Uh, that's described in chapter 27, verses 9 to 11, for instance. Um, uh, make a courtyard of the ta- for the tabernacle. The south side shall be a hundred cubit long uh, and is to have curtains of finely twisted linen, linen with twenty posts and twenty bronze bases and silver hooks and bands on the post. The north side shall be a hundred cubits long and is to have curtains with twenty posts, twenty bronze bases, silver hooks and bands on the post. The west side of the courtyard shall be fifty cubits wide and have curtains with ten posts and ten bases and on the east, uh, east end towards the sunrise it will be 50 cubits wide and so on. It's a rectangle, you see, twice as long as it was wide and uh, comprising a long linen curtain. And in the east there was an entrance into that big courtyard. Ordinary Israelites could enter into that uh, courtyard. The tabernacle proper, though, comprised a long tent with wooden frames or walls at the heart of that courtyard. And that uh, uh, tent was divided into two parts. There was an outer part, which was called the holy place. It was entered uh, via a curtain, again, on the, uh, uh, the eastern side. Priests could regularly enter into that, uh, that part of the tent. But then behind it, there was an inner part of the tent, the square at the, uh, the top. That, that, that you can see there. That was called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And there it was that God dwelt. The plan uh, of the tabernacle actually presented the Israelites in a sense with, with, a, with a model of what it meant to live in God's presence with a model of God dwelling in, at the heart of his universe in one sense. As they approached God, they were presented with ever-increasing visions of awe and beauty and perfection. The outer part, for instance, had um, uh, 
dimensions whereby it was twice as long as it was wide and it, and it wasn't very high, about seven feet, uh, feet high. It was an imperfect shape. It was uh, imperfect rather like the world is imperfect. People could uh, uh, freely go into that. But then this holy place in the uh, uh, front portion of the tent was a rectangle of the same proportions of the co- as the courtyard, two by one, 20 cubits by 10 cubits, uh, 15 feet by uh, 30 feet roughly, but this time 15 feet high as well, so that it was a cuboid of two perfect cubes. mathematicians it was a more perfect shape but the most holy place was perfection itself 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits a perfect cube a perfect place for a perfect God and more than that the materials of the tabernacle symbolise these sort of concentric circles of uh, approaching God and what that what uh, that that meant. The um, uh, posts, for instance, that held up those curtains round the outside of the the courtyard, all had bronze bases, and the tent pegs that uh, stopped that that um, rather flimsy wall from waving in the wind, the tent pegs were bronze as well, because they were rooted in the very imperfect earth. But uh, interestingly, all the fittings on those posts in the outer courtyard were silver. When we come to the tabernacle proper, we find actually that uh, the frames which, were, which made up the tent all had feet which were silver in a sense to match the tops of, the, uh, of the, uh, the outer boundary. If they could have built two-storey tents, maybe they would have had a two-storey tent, but, um, but, uh, but they couldn't, so, so it, it, uh, it was symbolised in that way. The bottom, the base of the main tent matched the top of the outer courtyard. But the fittings, at least all the fittings that were visible from the inside on that tent, in both the holy place and the most holy place, were gold. So as as this tent um, moves closer, or the parts of this tent are closer and closer to God, so we move from bronze to silver to gold, to be in his presence. And then there were the colours that uh, this tent was, uh, uh, the, this tabernacle m- was made of. No, no particular colour was stipulated for the, uh, the curtain of the, around the main uh, courtyard, but the entrance was uh, of blue and purple and red, perhaps just a hint that they were entering into a special place that uh, had hints of God about it, a sense of royal opulence. But... Um, Uh, on entering the holy place, everything was uh, blue, purple, red and gold. This was like a royal courtroom. The dominant uh, 
colour of blue perhaps convey the sense of, uh, of heaven itself since the heavens were blue, weren't they? On the inside of the, uh, the holy place, on those curtains, angels were embroidered called cherubim. And those images of angels continued right into the most holy place. So they have a little model of God's universe. Perhaps some of you have been to uh, uh, the planetarium in London and marvelled at uh, what, it, what it shows you about the world. Well, this is their little theological version of a planetarium. Showed them what God's world is, is about. A wider world, which is ordinary and rather imperfect, with hints of glory about it. But then, at the heart of that world, of God, who as we approach him, we see more and more clearly, is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. But uh, the furnishings in that uh, tabernacle are perhaps the most uh, important for us to uh, understand. In the courtyard, the people needed to learn what was necessary to enter into God's fuller presence. The courtyard has two main bits of furniture. The first is a bronze altar. That was where regular sacrifices were, were made in their great deliverance, remember, from Egypt. Each family had been saved because they sacrificed the lamb. And from that moment on, really, sacrifice became a regular part of Israel's life. And those sacrifices were complex, but overall they conveyed the clear sense that Israel, God's people, had sinned and payment had to be made. God provided sacrificial animals as substitutes so that the people themselves would not have to pay with their own lives. Right at the heart of the, the courtyard then. Interestingly actually at the heart, if you divide that rectangle into the two squares you'll see that that altar of burnt offering is right at the centre of the first square teaching the Israelites that to approach God a sacrifice must be made. The second furnishing in the, um, uh, in the tabernacle was a large basin of water. It was for the priests to wash in. Um, look at uh, chapter 30 for instance verses um, 17 to 21. The Lord said to Moses, Make a, a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar. Put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting an offering made to the Lord by fire, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. See, in addition to having their sins dealt with at the altar, then there was a sense in which anyone, uh, which was the priests in practice, who wanted to enter the holy place, had to be cleansed, had to be washed clean. Perhaps as a sign of personal 
uh, penitence, effectively saying, a, pa- a sacrifice has been paid for my sins and now I commit personally, I commit myself to a clean life. I wash off the dirt that is on me. Actually, there was also a sense, uh, there came to be a sense in which water stood that water stood as a symbol of the separation of God's people from the holy place. That, or or, or uh, the separation between the wider world, you see, and the, and the holy place. Water was always a feared obstacle in Israel's eyes. And when the temple was built, which was a larger version of this tabernacle, they started calling that wash basin the sea. The sea was the object of Israel's greatest fear. Here's an expanse of water then that stands before a worshipper as they stand at the entrance and look towards the holy place that they know has to be crossed, has to be passed through if anyone is to enter God's presence. They need uh, sacrifice and they need washing then in order for uh, priests, and it was priests only, to enter the holy place. The uh, holy place itself then uh, gave them artefacts which helped them to understand and appreciate what it means to live close to God. In the holy place in particular, there were two furnishings. There was a table which was to have bread placed perpetually on it, verse 25, uh, chapter 25, sorry, verses 23 and 24. Make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, a cubit wide and a cubit and a half high. Lay it over with pure gold, make a gold moulding around it. Verse 30, put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. This bread of the presence, or sometimes it's called showbread, was a symbolic meal that was set before God every week and then ceremonially eaten in a holy place by the priests. It represented, in a sense, God's provision for his people, God's hospitality even, as his priests eat from his table. Then there was uh, a lampstand in, uh, in the holy place. Verses 31 to uh, 32. Make a lampstand of pure gold, hammer it out, base and shaft. Its flower-like cups, buds and blossoms shall be a one piece with it. Six branches to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other, and so on. It is rich in symbolism, not all of which I think we can pretend to understand. The seven lights of the lampstand surely suggested the glory of living close to God as well as uh, uh, perhaps the glory of the sun and the moon and the stars which God had placed in the sky. This uh, lampstand was fashioned like a tree, an almond tree, which is interesting because almost certainly almonds were the very first cultivated uh, fruit tree that human beings had. Perhaps it would have conjured up then for them images of fruitfulness, of ancient fruitfulness, perhaps even of the Garden of Eden, perhaps even of the Tree of Life in the Garden of Eden. 
is a fruitful tree festooned with light. To live close to God, then, is to feast with him, to enjoy his light, to enjoy his light-filled, fruitful creation in the midst of those glorious colours of red and purple and, uh, and blue as embroidered angels looked on. A wonderful picture. But there was more. Beyond the holy place was the most holy place, behind a second curtain. There we see what it's like to be in God's presence itself. First item of the uh, most holy place is uh, a little altar of incense which actually physically sits outside the uh, most holy place in the holy place but it's specifically described as being most holy, as belonging to that inner sanctum. Morning and evening, incense was burned on that little uh, altar. And the sweet smell, of course, would permeate the tent and uh, into the uh, most holy place. Outside, if you can imagine it, prayers were being said, burnt offerings were filling the air with an acrid, foul-smelling smoke. But inside, in the presence of God, that, that, that messy, nasty, no doubt imperfect worship was symbolically converted into something beautiful in God's presence, which God enjoyed. Because he saw that the people were doing what he wanted them to do, were coming to him with sincere hearts. So a little altar burns sweet incense to symbolise that sweet smell in the nostrils of God himself. Through uh, the curtain then into the most holy place. First of all, uh, uh, you would see two fearsome angelic angels called cherubim. Back in Genesis chapter 3, um, Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden and God placed cherubim there at the entrance to stop them ever returning to that place where they had enjoyed God's fruitfulness and God's presence. And here the cherubim are still now guarding the presence of God in the holy, uh, most holy place. They stand over an ark, verse 10 of chapter 25. Have them make a chest of acacia wood two and a half cubits long, a, um, a cubit and a half wide and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold both inside and out, make a gold moulding around him, around it. This was either actually a footstool for God or perhaps God's throne itself, we don't know. But God himself was said to be invisibly seated between the cherubim. Only the high priest could enter that place once a year. God's full presence still could not come to the people of Israel. He was still guarded by angels. He was still virtually inaccessible. He dwelt in their midst at the heart of their community but there was layer after layer after layer preventing an Israelite from stumbling into his presence because if they did that they would die. 
Now they had to understand that sacrificing, cleansing water was necessary. They had to understand it was a rare privilege even to enter the holy place and enjoy the, the light and the bread there. And it was the rarest of all privileges to get a glimpse of the most holy place. In a sense, if you think about it, their uh, life up to that point in the book of Exodus had gone through that uh, similar process. They had been delivered from Egypt through sacrifice. Lambs had been slaughtered for uh, the Israelites which had uh, stopped the, uh, the, the plague on the firstborn coming upon them. And they had escaped because of those, those lambs were sacrificed. Just as now the altar symbolised the sacrifice necessary. They had escaped through water as well. The Red Sea had parted. They had uh, 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 marched through. And then the Red Sea had closed and cleansed them from their enemies. And now they were heading to a land of milk and honey, of fruitfulness and light. Rather like that holy place. Meantime, they, uh, uh, they, they carried with them the constant reminder that this is what, hap- what needs to happen to enter the presence of God. And that pattern gets repeated again and again through Scripture. Most especially, it's repeated in the New Testament. You see, when, when uh, Jesus came, he personally fulfilled and surpassed all of that imagery and more. Actually, there's, there's specific connections made with that Old Testament tabernacle. In John chapter uh, 1, John tells us that Jesus himself tabernacled amongst us. Jesus is the true tabernacle, the true place where we can approach God. The tabernacle had bread of the presence there in the holy place and then Jesus said, I am the bread of life. The tabernacle had a perpetual light from a lampstand burning in that holy place. Then Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Amazingly, when Jesus died, John insists with uh, extreme vehemence that he saw water and blood come from the side of uh, uh, from Jesus' side when his side was pierced. And of course, uh, those of us with a medical bent think, oh, well, that, that's because it proved that Jesus was thoroughly dead, the blood had congealed to a clot and uh, serum, and John's just saying, I saw clear evidence that he was dead. But actually, maybe John wasn't quite so medical. Maybe actually John had read his Old Testament and understood it. Maybe John knew from the tabernacle and the temple which followed it that everyone must be uh, forgiven by the shedding of blood and cleansed by water. 
and he saw an extraordinary uh, symbolism in the fact that both blood and water came from the dead Jesus' side. Jesus, remember, left us with two main memorial actions, things to do. They were communion, to remember his sacrificial death, and they were baptism, whereby we who have become Christians symbolise that cleansing that God has achieved for us as we pass through the waters. When Jesus died, the Gospels all tell us that the curtain between that holy place and most holy place was ripped from top to bottom so that now those who come into the presence of God are in one sense ushered straight into the most holy place. A place where where, where, where Israelites virtually never went. into the presence of God himself. And more than that, this pattern continues right up to the end of Scripture as Revelation starts to to unfold what what is going to finally happen at the end of time. First of all, in Revelation chapter 5, we are are shown God and Jesus surrounded by angels but separated from the rest of the world, from his people, by a great crystal sea. An expanse of water. But finally in Revelation chapter 21, turn to it because you may find it of... uh, some interest in Revelation is nice and easy to find at the end of the Bible. Finally, in Revelation chapter one, uh, chapter, chapter twenty-one, verse one, we find God coming personally now to create His new heaven and His new earth to. Uh, um, to forgive all his resurrected saints and to be united with them and we are told there was no longer any sea. That element of the symbolism of water whereby the water separated us from God is gone. The New Jerusalem, as it's described in this extraordinary imagery of Revelation 21, which is, which is again only a picture. The New Jerusalem is, um, uh, is described as, one, as a perfect cube 1,400 miles in each direction. The known world of John's day was about that size, 1,400 miles by 1,400. All the world, says John, is going to now be transformed into a most holy place. In the holy place, remember, there was that little lampstand with seven lights 
But now we're told in verse 23 of Revelation 21, the city does not need even the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb is its lamp. All those elements of knowing God, past, present and future, were, 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 were encapsulated in principle in that 3,000 year old tent and those, those symbols continue right down through the rest of Scripture to show us what it means to come into the presence of God, to know God. And as I said at the beginning, frankly, it's the most important thing Exodus wants to teach us. At least if we take seriously the detail, the attention, the space that is given to describing this tabernacle. God's great purpose for his people is for them to know him. God's great purpose for the whole of eternity is for his whole eternity to be united in his presence. God's great purpose for his people is for them to enjoy him. And we pass through blood and water. But we enjoy his presence forever and ever. Let me ask you then, that is the focus of the story of Exodus. That is the focus of the story of the Bible. Is it the focus of your life? Is it the greatest thing that energises your life? Is it, is it at the heart of what your life is all about? Is it at the heart of our community life here? As it was at the heart of the community there? No, maybe that there are some of us here who frankly don't even know that God. Frankly are bemused by all these symbols that seem to, uh, to overflow from the page. It's quite possible that there are, here, there are people here who in Exodus terms are all the way back in Egypt. who in Exodus terms are uh, still in bondage and toil. I have not yet found God. Well, if some of the details have confused you, confused you never mind, let me ask you, has there, has you got a glimpse, have you got a sense of God's great purpose for all of us that we should know him? There may be others, I suspect more, who actually cannot picture their life journey as beyond Exodus 23. Yes, there's the deliverance out of Egypt and the, uh, animal, the, 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 the lamb sacrificed to, uh, uh, to pay for us. Yes, there is that wonderful passing through the Red Sea, getting to Mount Sinai. Yes, there is the giving of those laws that require daily obedience, but perhaps that's the end point of our expectation of the Christian life. 
only obedience. It's not the end point of the Exodus. It's not the end point of the Bible. The end point of the Bible is enjoying the presence of God. See, in uh, one sense, our journey doesn't um, doesn't even stop at the courtyard of the tabernacle. We can walk past that altar because there is a sacrifice on it already. We can dip our hands into that uh, uh, that basin and wa- and wash because water has been provided to make us clean. We can lift the curtain into the uh, holy place glancing at that lampstand perhaps, glancing the other way at the bread of the presence. But actually our eyes are set on a tear in the curtain and we can glimpse beyond it something far greater than those two. We can glimpse the light of the world. We can, gri- we, we can glimpse the bread of life. We can glimpse Jesus Christ himself seated between the cherubim. with angels holding, as Revelation chapter 5 says, golden bowls now, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and singing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. We were made for the ravishing delight of knowing God and Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 says that our gospel is about the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is the good news. And we can see that. We were made, says 2 Corinthians 3, to be transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory because we behold God's glory. We have a privilege that Israelites longed for. We can see God. We can see God in the face of Christ. We can see God in Christ as he uh, uh, mounts to the cross and dies for our sins. We can see God in Christ as he rises from the dead and says, all authority is given to me. Surely I am with you to the very end of the age. We were made for God's presence. We were made to enjoy it. We can glimpse that now and the Bible says, us, says we can be absolutely confident that one day what we glimpse today will burst into glorious full reality so that there will be no bread of the presence, no lamp, no tabernacle, but simply a new creation which is called the most holy place. And there's no sin. Our life isn't focused on that. doesn't see its, its end point. 
and we haven't begun to see what the scripture teaches us.